All right, we are rolling now. Counting us down. Three, two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hello there, Misketeers. Welcome back to Missing Out. I'm Tari J. I'm Lex Michael. And if this is your first time listening, what we do here is we introduce each other to different media, whether it be movies, music, television, spoken word, books, experiences, things that have built us up as people, and we hope that in sharing it, it builds you up. We are the retrospective that is introspective. God, that that Tari J is such a such an enigmatic and fascinating podcaster, but we just know so little about him. I mean, where's he from? What's his real age? Where's he get all his money? Don't ask about me. Don't ask. Don't ask about me. Don't don't talk about me. I'm same age as you. <laughs> Whatever age you are, I'm same age as you. So this week we are talking about the disaster artist, the book. Oh yeah, we are we're always talking about doing books and stuff. The full title is The Disaster <laughs> Artist, My Life Inside the Room, The Greatest Bad Movie Ever Made. It was published in 2013. It was written by Greg Sestero and Tom Bissell. Uh, Greg, you might know from the movie The Room, the cult classic that is known to be one of the best worst movies. Oh boy, everyone loves to laugh at things. It's like the non-musical version of Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> That's, yeah, that makes sense. That's a, it's a great pitch. Thank you. I, uh, I spend lots of time doing cool stuff. Pitching is one of them. <laughs> but speaking of pitches, this was a recommendation from one of our fans, Cam Griffin, uh, on Twitter, at Pink Pink Bile. And he was kind enough to do a pitch for us. Here it is. Hi, I'm Cam Griffin, and I suggest y'all check out The Disaster Artist, a book by actor Greg Sestero about his experience working on the 2003 film The Room. Imagine a movie so bad it's good. Imagine almost every set piece, every strange line delivery, and every questionable creative choice all becoming in-jokes to the cult-like following that that film accrued. This sort of thing is nothing new these days, but the story behind The Room's creation is a wild one to be sure. If author-slash-room actor Greg Sestero is to be believed, and I believe, the disaster artist is the true story of what one man with enough time, money, and albeit misguided vision will do to make his dream come true. While the film adaptation of the disaster artist takes a more comedic approach, this book shows the full drama of the alleged behind-the-scenes reality. From frankly scary buzz between Greg's time knowing Tommy Wiseau and the plot of The Room itself, to how the room's production went through cast and crew like a stereotypical Hollywood agent goes through cigarettes. This story is as fascinating as Tommy Wiseau himself. Thanks for hearing my pitch. Can't wait to hear the episode. That was really good. Cam uh, really broke it down. Very well said. Really liked his description of the book versus the movie. 
I think that that kind of encapsulates the spirit of the disaster artist. I both I listened to the book, which is an audiobook that is narrated by Greg Sestero. Uh, I also watched the movie because I wanted to be able to compare the two. Lex, you've seen the movie and did you listen to the book or did you read it? Yes. So I had seen The Disaster Artist and I am very, very glad that I too chose to listen to the audiobook version because although, yes, you could do the Tommy Wiseau voice in your head for yourself while reading it on the page, I feel like you really do lose something if you don't have uh, Greg Sestero imitating his friend Tommy Wiseau for the entirety of the 11 hours. Yeah, his uh, his impression is really good. And I think it really adds a lot to the flow of the book. And it really like kind of brings those moments that you're kind of dealing with Tommy Wiseau crazy to life. And I really enjoyed that. Like there were some moments where I was like, did he just get Tommy to record his lines? But no, he's like doing a real spot on job. Yeah. And I also like that his impression is it's a more grounded take on the character like the James Franco version that you get in the movie is kind of a a heightened version that is kind of what Tommy Wiseau is like but it's it's also you can tell that it is a diluted version of what is in the room the movie Mm -hmm. it's like the difference between doing a realistic version of like Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is like basically an Austrian accent versus doing a caricature, which is just like a lot of like, so there's a, there's a lot more nuance in the Greg Sestero version. It's, you know, it's because they were friends and like the longer you spend with someone, uh, their friendship over 10 years long, essentially you can kind of get a feel for them and you can do a, a pretty good I, I would say approximation of that person. Yes. I mean I would say for sure that Franco's Tommy Wiseau in the Disaster Artist movie is very much like if you were gonna do a, an animated series version of the room i would say like this is the version of tommy wiseau uh, uh, that you would probably be looking at but also you talk about how greg's uh, approximation of tommy feels a lot more grounded and and that in part is because of their their closeness and their intimacy as friends and i do think regardless of your opinion of the disaster artist the movie i do think it was a real sort of clever play on the part of james franco who directed it to cast himself and his brother as Tommy and Greg, because you get, especially if you're going to have that very sort of cartoonish, exaggerated version of Tommy Wiseau, you need something that grounds them in this almost familial relationship. By the time they get onto that set, they really do feel in a way, if not like brothers, then certainly like kind of bizarre, uh, uncomfortably close cousins. (laughs) Maybe my favorite thing about the disaster artist is that they're able to take the story of a movie notorious for being, uh, oh my God, let's laugh at this level terrible, and actually give it an emotional center, which is the friendship between these two guys. And the way Sestero and Bissell tell the story in the book, it really does end up becoming just as much about the friendship between these two guys and the weird twists and turns their relationship takes as it is about the making of the movie. And in fact, as far as the the through line of the thing, it really is more about their relationship and who Tommy is or isn't or maybe as a person 
uh, more so than who he may or may not be or aspire to be as an artist, as a filmmaker. And I think that's uh, that's a clever play because it takes the story from just being an oddity to being something I think that transcends that and makes it a sort of uh, valuable, accessible story on its own. And I think that having experienced them both, I definitely, for me, prefer the book experience to the movie experience because I think that there's a lot of character depth. No, I guess that isn't the right word because these are real people. But like, I think that they, the book really dives into who Tommy is underneath all of the the like bravado and the, the, the clothes and the accent and the, the glasses and how he affects those around him. And I also feel like it goes into a lot of depth in terms of like what it's like to pursue your dream and how like high that can make you feel, but also how crushing it can be. And so like, I really like the exploration of those aspects. Um, and we're going to definitely talk about the differences between the the book and the movie once we get past the spoiler wall. But I really wanted to make sure I got that in front of it just because like there's merit to experiencing both of them. The audiobook is only about 11 hours or so, maybe like an 11 and a half hours. You can listen to it in your pastime. It goes very quickly and, you know, Audible, not, hashtag not sponsored, you know, helps keep track of where you are. You can put bookmarks and do notes and stuff as you're going along. So uh, I highly recommend that experience as well. Lex, is there anything you want to talk about before we drop down that sweet spoiler wall? I guess without, yeah, without delving into spoilers, um, I think one of my favorite things about this story, uh, or at least the elements of this story that do focus specifically on Tommy Wiseau's efforts to get his movie made. There is a version of this story that's less weird and less dark and less demented and less mysterious that is very much in line with a lot of stories that I enjoy. Uh, an example, a fairly recent example being, um, I was a big, big fan of Dolomite Is My Name, the uh, Netflix movie with Eddie Murphy, where he plays Rudy Ray Moore. And the story is essentially about how when nobody is going to believe in me, when nobody is going to put their resources behind me when no one's going to vouch for me nobody's going to open any doors for me well if i want to achieve my goals if i want to live my dreams then what needs to happen is for me to believe in myself is for me to back me is for me to get creative and me to be my biggest fan and my biggest advocate because that's what i'm going to need to do to get myself out there to get my dream out there i believe in this so much and i believe in me so much that I'm going to do it for myself and I'm going to I'm going to prove it to them. And ultimately, like Rudy Ray Moore does, he made a movie, made Dolomite, which say what you will about the quote unquote objective cinematic quality of the thing. He did it. He got there, you know, like he got to achieve his dream and things worked out well for him and, and for the people he worked with. Same thing with like Kevin Smith making Clerks. That's part of why people love that story so much. He, he believed in himself enough to go out and, and roll the dice and make a movie with his friends. Tommy Wiseau did a version of that. But this is the sort of like the dark flip side to that coin. This is a version of that story where you're sort of in the mirror verse. This is like the dark mirror verse version of a story like that. And so it speaks to me, A, as a uh, just a fan of movies in general, like making movies is, is a fascinating process when it goes as smoothly as it ever goes, uh, let alone when it's this much of a truly bizarre nightmare circus, but also as uh, an inversion or a subversion of a story 
story form that I'm in general pretty much a, a big fan of to begin with. So that's, I guess, my last thought before we take our break and, and come back and drop the spoiler wall down. They do, though. We all know that they made this movie. So I, I guess uh, it's spoilers in advance in that regard. But uh, how dare you? I know. What do you, you just like drop that piece of information over the wall? It's it's fucked. Why would you do that? It's, I, it's honestly, uh, I'm just now flaunting my disregard for uh, the establishment and for society. Tari, you're you're the you're the fist of the man and I won't have it anymore. So I'm, I'm rebelling. I uh, reject that premise uh, <laughs> and I am lowering the gates of the spoiler wall. Listen to it. Clink and clink and clink. We're, we're rolling it down. Chicka, 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 chicka. So as we've mentioned, you can listen to the audiobook version on Audible. You can do like a 30 day free trial and listen to the whole thing in a couple days or in one sitting, depending on how crazy cool you are. I can't tell you what the coolness scale is. You're just going to have to determine it for yourself. Uh, if you wanted to watch the movie, it is available on Netflix and for rent on all uh, streaming platforms, you know, Google Play Store, YouTube movie, Amazon, etc. Go check them out if you don't want to be spoiled for any thing that happens in the book or the movie or if you're like yo i'm crashing through these are real events Uh, uh, this enhances my experience knowing what's coming then baby follow us after the spoiler wall goes down while we're here if you have a chance and you're feeling so inclined please go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating, a review. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you want to hear from us. Tell us, uh, you know, I don't know, your favorite thing about the room. Whatever you want to say. Um, Leave us a five-star review. We read those here on the show. And yeah, we appreciate your support. I know things are crazy right now. People aren't listening to podcasts as much as they used to, so we appreciate you continuing to listen to ours. That said, we will come back right after this break and we are back and you know what that means it's time to bust a recap it's like bouncing off the walls and stuff. Like, this is so much echo oh, I'm like, like, like a ricochet where did it come from oh boy maybe there were more than one shooter oh <laughs> Anyways, we decided that we would try to tackle this together like the best friends that we are. (laughs) We go in chronological order. If you've read the book, you know that it kind of jumps back and forth between Greg's life and the experience of creating the room. And we thought we would start with Greg's wonderful life and then go all the way through to the last frames. Ooh, baby. So... I'll get this baby started, baby. I like saying the word baby. We start with Greg, the son of a Sicilian and French immigrant mother and a father of unknown determination. And he wants to become a star, but his mother is uh, not supportive and she hates the idea of him doing anything that is, in her view, impractical. And so she discourages him so hard and his dad is like and so he despite her wants and needs takes it upon himself and starts taking classes he uh starts reaching out to different people for representation his mom tanks him so hard and he's like i'm feeling discouraged and then he continues to take classes but he's like i'm 
over it. I hate watching people act. I hate this, the, the journey of acting. Everything is bummer town. I'm jaded. And then a guy he describes as pirate-like decides to act in his class. And he's like, wow, this guy doesn't give two shits. This guy is fearless. Ooh, I want to get to know this guy. And then he decides that he wants to do a scene with this guy who we would come to know as Tommy. Why so? Dun, dun, dun. And then what happens, Lex? I mean, I guess my first thought would be, I, I would imagine Tommy Wiseau would absolutely love your little, the musical sting that you chose to include upon his introduction. I like to think he'd get a kick out of that. So Tommy Wiseau, who Sestero meets in this acting class, naturally Greg's reaction is a version of, what, what in the fuck? Who is this person? Because the, the guy looks weird, sounds weird, behaves weird, uh, is very, very dodgy when asked any sorts of personal questions whatsoever. But something about Tommy's energy Something about his his attitude towards uh, the craft and towards living, something about it is very, very appealing to Greg. And so the two of them end up forming a friendship, which is real weird. And Greg constantly feels like he's on the back foot a little bit, trying to navigate the various idiosyncrasies of Tommy's being, of his quirks, of his personality. Uh, and yes, it's maybe the quirkiest of quirky personalities. And so Greg eventually is able to get an agent and he starts working as an actor. And Tommy seems to be developing a little bit of a, of a jealousy towards Greg, trying to figure out, well, why is this working out for you and not for me? I, I have all of these dreams and aspirations and all this value as an artist. Why does nobody see it? Um, Greg, at a certain point, is, uh, is looking for a place to stay. So Tommy volunteers this empty apartment he has in Los Angeles. Well, how do you just have an empty apartment that you don't use in a city as expensive as Los Angeles, Tommy. And Tommy's very dodgy about that, just like he seems very dodgy about all of the money he seems to have out of nowhere, a huge amount of money that he seems to have just magically out of nowhere whatsoever. And as their relationship becomes a little bit contentious because of Tommy's weird jealousy and misdirected anger, like uh, Tommy's threatening to kick him out. And, and, and it's, it's just this weird source of animosity. But at a certain point, they go and they see the Talented Mr. Ripley, which is a movie that has a profound effect on Tommy Wiseau and sort of seems like it's the catalyst for a, a big pivot in the life of Tommy. But Tari, what... Uh, God, I can't, I'm, I'm so clumsy and, and scatterbrained. My notes run out after this page and I don't know where the rest of them are. I, I misplaced my files. Do you Do you have... Uh, oh, yeah, have I files? have a file. Oh, look, I'm... I'm Shuffle. Oh man, I'm going through the file right now, and it says that after they see the talented Mr. Ripley, for two separate reasons, Greg was like, I'm going to show him this movie, and it'll illuminate to him how, uh, I don't know, toxic he can be. And for Tommy, he was like, this is, I'm Mr. Ripley, and I'm willing to do anything to make my dreams come true. So he starts writing a story. He starts writing, maybe it'll be a play. Maybe it'll be a movie. Maybe it'll be something. But I want to, to make something all my own. And so he starts doing that, and he's like, oh, man, I'm going to name characters after you. I'm going to... Uh, be in your space i'm living in la now and oh yeah i'm gonna make this thing happen but at some point he starts to feel really 
really de- dejected and he is having trouble writing and all the while greg is having a little bit of success and so he's like i i have to go now and he disappears for nine months <laughs> greg gets uh a little more like he he starts developing relationships he starts working at an assortment of retaileries and he starts having what one could feel like is a normal life sans his dream of being an actor and then tommy shows up again and is like i wrote this thing you're gonna be in it and it's gonna be so crazy greg is a little bit uh, he's hesitant at first because his relationship with Tommy had been so frayed by the time that Tommy disappeared, and he was living with his girlfriend at the time, and he wasn't sure. He, like, he still cared about Tommy. Tommy was still his friend, and he was the reason why he was in L.A. to begin with. So he was like, all right, I'll, I'll help you out. And then Tommy is like, yo, you're going to be one of the main stars in my movie, and I'm going to pay you a bunch of money money and uh, I'm gonna give you a car two things that Greg desperately needed so they decided to embark on this journey together Tommy more excited about it than Greg and then we start getting into the what one could describe as the ridiculous series of events leading to the kick and screaming end of the production of the room which, uh, oh boy, man, uh, my my notes seem to be, oh, that's where the file ends. Lex Michael, what, what, what happens next? Oh! Y'all basically know the rest. The Room was one of the most psychotic small productions that, that uh, I think conceivably has existed, quite possibly, in the annals of film history. Uh, it was an absolute disaster. Tommy Wiseau, though a man possessed of uh, clearly no small amount of drive, and arguably no small amount of vision, I think it can be said that he had a very clear vision of some kind, but was an incredibly volatile and toxic person to work with. And the production more or less reflected that. The relationships between Tommy Wiseau and damn near every member of that cast and crew were somewhere between a hurricane and a train wreck, I think is maybe the best way uh, to describe it. I believe so. He was ostensibly the writer, producer, director, and so on down the line. But of course, was it uh, Sandy uh, Schler, who came on initially, I think, to be script supervisor, ultimately ended up having to uh, do enough of the job of director that years later, he too would put out his own book, uh, arguing for directing credit on the movie. But a massive amount of wild erratic changes, dialogue that makes no sense, performance choices that make even less sense, and a lot of, as alluded to, really sort of toxic abusive behavior on the part of Tommy Wiseau, of both emotional abuse and in a couple of cases, some physical abuse as well. And so every every choice that you could make on a movie that is wrong, that is seemingly incompetent, he would make. Um, That's part of why the final result is what it is. But the entire time, all of these choices are are costing the movie. They're costing the movie both time and, of course, uh, that directly translates on a movie set to costing a lot of money. And so the questions persist. Yeah, one, who the hell is this guy? But two, where the hell does this dude's money come from? You know, that he can make such wildly impractical and wildly expensive production choices. And so uh, Greg 
attempts to do a little bit of digging, but Tommy is so very guarded about his past. Uh, we get far enough to figure out like a potential version of the story that involves Tommy sort of growing up in an Eastern Bloc country, becoming obsessed with America, eventually getting super into bird toys, and then becoming like a real estate tycoon. And this is possibly how he accrued all of his money, although plenty of people working on the movie think it's entirely possible he's somehow tied to organized crime and the whole thing is a money laundering operation. Maybe Tommy was the second gunman on the grass you know, for all we know. So they make it through this production and Tommy gives Greg a rough cut of the movie and he screens it for his family and the whole family. Uh, and he was very nervous because his mother, uh, as we alluded to at the top of this breakdown, uh, his mother's never been all that supportive. So it's a big deal, big deal. And it's, you know, it's a position of vulnerability to sit down with people whose support is in question and show them, well, this is what we've been working on all this time. And his family is, is sort of gets very involved in how utterly bizarrely inept this movie is. And that proves to be the reaction of audiences by and large to such a degree that when the room finally comes out it becomes a cult phenomenon and now here we are uh full we're we're wow we're coming up on 20 years of the room well, in in just a couple years time this thing will celebrate its 20th anniversary and we are still talking about it now its reputation uh it refers to it as uh, the citizen kane of bad movies it's a big deal and so for better or worse this is very much a story about yes friendship but also of a really strange uh, a batshit crazy character who so desperately and belligerently believed in a himself and his vision that he actually for better or worse willed this thing into creation um, and now we're doing a podcast about it. And that, I believe, is the story of The Room. Oh, yeah. You done nailed that, baby. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Ooh. Um, so I think that that kind of gets us towards the segment that we like to call What's the Difference? Ooh, ooh, ooh. And... I would like to talk a little bit about this crazy star-studded movie because I feel like a lot of people, their first exposure to the disaster artist, the story behind the room, was the movie created by James Franco. And it has all the people that you love from comedies, especially like Judd Apatow comedies. So we're talking about James Franco, Seth Rogen, Dave Franco, uh, we got Allison Brie, Paul Shear, Zac Efron, Josh Hutcherson, Megan Mullally, what? Nathan Fielder, what? Sharon Stone, Bob Odenkirk, Judd Apatow himself, what? Melanie Griffith, what? June Diane Raphael, what? <laughs> That's actually how the, the credits read on the movie when you get to the scroll. It's like Sharon Stone, what? Like all typed out, like W-H-A-A-A-A-A-A-T and two exclamation points. Right. This movie, like my commentary on last week's movie, which was JFK, also feels like a movie where they were like, hey, do you want to do a, a day's worth of work for SAG scale and just be in a, a crazy movie? And the people were like, yeah, I'll do that. 
Hopefully it wins some awards. Then I could be like, I was in this award-winning thing, which is crazy. And that is what happened. Something I really would like to point out, because you were talking about the long journey of the creation of the room to its cult status to now, is that like in the book, they talk about how Greg would watch the Golden Globes and it would kind of make him feel shitty because it felt like he wasn't getting anywhere in his career. And there was one specific moment when he had arrived back at his apartment and uh, he felt like just kind of like falling into a pile. He had driven through Golden Globes traffic and Tommy basically kind of forced him to go out. He was glad that he went out because it meant he didn't have to watch the Golden Globes, which I find to be a nice way of of history kind of wrapping around in that this movie about that experience ended up winning a Golden Globe. So I like how the cyclical nature of the thing that made him feel terrible at one point during the journey is ultimately where the story led. And he and Tommy were both in this movie, so they were in a movie that won a Golden Globe, which I like to kind of uh, karmically point out. Yeah, it's a movie based on a book, based on their lives about a movie that they made. Yep. I'm a dude playing a dude dressed as another dude. Um, so the, the thing I think that is most prominently different between the book and the movie is the depiction of the development of their relationship. I mean, they streamline a lot of aspects of it because there is a long time between the point that Tommy comes to join Greg in Los Angeles. I think that the depiction of their friendship is a lot more wholesome in the movie, whereas, like, I think in the book, there are a lot of layers of manipulation and a lot more... I would say, depressive moments between the two of them. Like, you get to understand why they become friends, because they're they're both two people who, in a way, share a certain kind of heritage in that a large aspect of Greg Sestero's life revolved around his being the son of a French immigrant. He spoke fluent French. One of his big first roles was because he could do a French accent because he had that French background. And Tommy himself spent, as far as we know, a lot of time in France growing up as a young boy named Pierre. And so they really share that kind of European background and they both share this aspect of feeling like they are outsiders in their own communities and in their own skins. And they both kind of go through the same feeling of not feeling wanted. Yes. But they have the, I I would say, opposite issue in that I think that Greg generally has a habit of undervaluing himself because of the way that he was brought up and, and how his parents ultimately tried to shrink him into fitting into what they wanted him to be. Whereas Tommy having to fend for himself for so long, allegedly grew into this place where he has no fear of what others think of him because he's had to endure so much that like, he just wants to make things happen. And so he has this really big, bold, boisterous, 
persona that he creates in order to hide what he's truly feeling inside, whereas Greg is more prone to let what he feels inside dictate how he lives his life. And it's a really interesting dichotomy between the two of them that you get in this book, whereas the movie kind of uses the like manic pixie dream girl uh, dynamic where Tommy is that manic pixie dream girl, the quirky person that really like reinvigorates <laughs> this other character's life and leads them to be a better person through their whimsy. And like that really shows. And I think that that really makes the comedy, the, the drama comedy that they're making digestible. Whereas like when you're experiencing these firsthand accounts through the book, you really have to see it through Greg's eyes and you feel for him and you feel how much the emotional manipulation that Tommy exudes upon him weighs on his spirit, but you also get how much he cares about Tommy and you get how broken Tommy himself is and how he views himself and how much like self-hatred there is inside of Tommy Wiseau and all the lengths he goes to mm -hmm. cover it up. And I think that's really interesting. Absolutely. I agree completely. I haven't revisited the movie in a little while, but what I remember of the relationship in the movie is definitely in line with what you're describing. Because even though we do poke at some of the psychology of Tommy Wiseau as depicted in the movie, you still, you can't get away from the fact that even though he's doing a pretty solid Tommy Wiseau, you're still watching James Franco in a wig doing a, a voice. The real guy, I think it's interesting, like, yeah, that that dichotomy, There, there's an interesting yin-yang element to the Tommy and Greg relationship. But I do think it's interesting that you sort of uh, initially phrased it as, you know, Tommy presents as somebody who doesn't necessarily care what other people think about him. And I, I'm really glad that you also pointed out the amount of self-loathing that exists inside of him because, yeah, like, to me, that's the key to the to the guy like that regardless of where he actually came from and it seems to have been confirmed more recently that he did grow up in Europe he i think he might be polish in origin but he just doesn't want to talk about it because that is one of several things about himself that for whatever reason he just couldn't reconcile and so it becomes a point of contention within himself it becomes something that he himself does not want to address or have addressed maybe just because it reminds him of a version of himself that he thinks is lesser or something that he feels like he wants to get away from and it's it's a sad portrait of this guy because you see throughout the story, um, as Greg tells it in the book, all of these moments where the way he presents, he's big, he's boisterous, he's got his finger on the pulse, he's savvy and perceptive in a way nobody else is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then every so often, there's these moments where like the facade cracks and Greg sees through it and he doesn't quite know what he's seeing because, again, he knows so little about where Tommy comes from. But he sees the kind of wounded, sad guy underneath that shell who built the shell as a way to compensate for the seemingly endless number of things that he feels for one reason or another that he needs to compensate for. And it makes me feel on some level genuinely bad for the guy because regardless of how he treats other people, although of course you really can't uh, when you put everybody together on a film set, you, you really can't look the other way when it comes to treating people in a very toxic manner. But putting that aside for a second, it all feels like 
sort of misdirected anger that he feels like he has to throw at other people because he doesn't quite know how to, A, how to vent it in a healthy, constructive way, or B, uh, failing that, how not to keep it from like rattling around inside him and like rebounding on himself. Like he seems like a guy who it's all about building that narrative, building that identity and making sure that literally anything that can conflict with it is sort of batted away as aggressively as possible. I think that's part of why when the room did sort of take off and become this weird cult phenomenon that was embraced by people, uh, in part because of how bad it is, uh, you know, people asked him, of course, like, well, did you always intend for the movie to be this bad and this ridiculous? And, you know, Tommy Wiseau just embraces it. He goes, of course, because that is how he then pivots again to shape the narrative, to shape his persona in a way that makes him feel better about himself. Because as you see throughout that entire story, like he's not trying to make a bad movie. This dude believes in this thing uh, to a fault with absolutely every fiber of his being. But he has to, has to, has to, has to cling to this version of himself that is better than, that is above, that can do it in a way that nobody else can, that is the star, or at the very least is destined to be the star. And if only people would listen to him, like he he could be that and, and so on. And to me, it's all just, it's indicative of just this really sad guy who like needs something so badly uh, externally because he can't manufacture it within himself um, because there's just nothing internally except a whole bunch of um, conflict and self-loathing and depression. And I, I tell you what, man, it makes me feel bad for the guy. If only, if only because woof, I get that. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Like, I think that the book does a really good job of painting this multifaceted individual because you you started to kind of get into the aspects of Tommy that you relate to. And I also like there's a, a specific moment that on its surface, when it is painted out in words by Greg Sestero, it's this moment that is terrifying and it is a harrowing moment between two individuals where essentially Tommy has Greg in his car and he starts frantically driving insanely while Greg is in the car like he's going to kill them both. And it's a moment that strains their relationship because it's this moment where you're like, okay, this guy is willing to murder us both because he just doesn't know how to deal with these interpersonal issues. But like, as you listen to it, you're like, oh man, this is crazy. But Greg caring for this guy and understanding who he is, even if not like having a full view of his background, understands his intention, really puts it into perspective in that like, it's this moment that you understand that maybe Tommy has done this before. Maybe Tommy has a very big habit of attracting people because of the persona that he puts on. And, you know, people not really understanding him as a whole are very attracted to this fearless view that he allows people to see. But, like, the closer that you get, it's the the hedgehog's dilemma that, like, you can't get too close to someone, otherwise you're going to hurt them. And so the closer he gets to someone, the more he lashes out at them in an attempt to drive them away before they hurt him, ultimately, the way that, like, he, you know, will describe in his his movie, like, everyone will always 
betray you, especially women or whatever. But like, it's this plea that he has that like, he doesn't know what to do with all of these feelings. And he is ultimately looking for someone who bless his heart that he, I think that he found Greg, someone who was suffering in closer to the same way that he was that really kind of was willing to stick it out for a while. But like, I mean, you know, guys, you know that I'm a big fan of mental health care. And I think that like, it would have done these two so much uh, like of a service to, you know, talk to someone about the things that they were feeling. Like they both express at different points, how they've gotten to the point of being pretty much suicidal because of the feelings of rejection and hurt that they both feel. And I'm glad that they're still friends to this day. And I'm glad that they found a venue to success through all that they've been through together. But I also have to acknowledge that like the, the road to getting there had been so destructive for both of them. I know that because it is a firsthand perspective of Greg, how he experienced Tommy's behavior, that it is very much painted in this super toxic way and justifiably so in that like Tommy having no one to really guide his upbringing had to kind of learn a lot of things himself. And like we as individuals aren't the best self-teachers, especially if we're not super introspective and so like that is why you get this sense of tommy being like an alien and having no real sense of interpersonal understanding is because like everything that he's learned he's probably learned from watching movies or just rationalized himself and doubled down because these are all the layers that he had to create to like paint on this mask of what is Tommy Wiseau, the Birdman, the the guy that he thinks that he needs to be to represent the like all American guy. Like there's a moment in the book towards the end where you start to kind of piece together who Tommy is and his view of what America and Hollywood is. And it's this American dream of like becoming whoever you want to be, no matter where you came from, you can become what you want. And ultimately like, because of the way that Tommy processes the world and possibly the result of maybe some brain damage, he has built this persona that is overtly toxic. And I think over time, he's probably like mellowed out. I would hope but like it's hard for him and i like you have to sympathize with how difficult everything is for him and how much he wants so desperately to be accepted and loved but he doesn't know how to do that it, no it's it's painful it's painful because i mean some of the stuff you just hit are things that we have spoken about on the show in the past that, that we perceive as maybe more relatable than we would like these things to be and i'm glad too that you you really got to the heart of it which is that all of the behavior all of the pushing to make the movie all of the lashing out at people on the set it's all ultimately fundamentally all of his toxicity comes from this place of wanting so desperately so desperately to be loved while at the same time not being able to generate even a little sliver of that for himself. And so, yeah, it, it translates to at a certain point in his relationships with people, 
he doesn't know what to do when the relationship doesn't implode or peter out. And so because he doesn't know how to navigate the relationship in any other way, he ends up, whether knowingly or not, imploding it himself because that's the only way he understands how to approach relationships. And it's it's sad. I mean, it's a huge, huge bummer. And a lot of it is like Greg talks in the book about how to essentially move to LA and pursue acting, there's got to be something a little maybe a little off about you to begin with. Um, and it's true, like you say, like you you draw that parallel between him and Tommy as far as what their goals are and how those goals reflect on their internal emotional state. And it's interesting how all of it for Greg seems to be like they both want validation, of course, but all of it for Greg seems to be about sort of figuring out who he is and stepping into that and using it. And there's an authenticity to that that I think is in part what serves him and why he is, uh, for a little while there, able to accelerate ahead of somebody like Tommy, who is doing everything in his power to create something fabricated because his true authentic self is something that he clearly has, for whatever reason, a very specific distaste for. And so you know, there's these layers between the world and whatever his authentic self is. And I think that that would certainly have held him back. Tommy is ultimately the one. And and I like this because it just sort of speaks to something in me that I guess gives me hope as somebody who moved to LA to work in entertainment and has no illusions about the odds of being able to do so successfully. I do love that while Greg did find some success Uh, approaching things traditionally and and getting representation and going out on audition after audition after audition. It is Tommy's lunatic, psychotic, I'm going to delude myself into believing my dreams will become reality no matter how impractical it is, no matter what anybody else tells me. It was that belligerence that ultimately created something that caught on the way the room did. And it's why to this day, people know who they are and why in in a way that is I'm sure very removed from what Greg originally wanted his dreams kind of came true as well and obviously something like the room happening or something like Rudy Ray Moore making Dolomite or, or Kevin Smith making Clerks that's the type of thing that maybe happens at most once a decade if it's going to catch on the way some of these things caught on but that's always been my philosophy as well. Like I don't have any illusions about the business and I don't really have any illusions about myself, but I have like Tommy Wiseau, I have dreams, I have aspirations and I have things that I think I have to offer. But most likely if those things are ever going to be noticed by other people, if I'm ever going to have an opportunity to showcase what I can offer, I am probably going to have to create those opportunities for myself. I'm probably going to have to design something that can offer me that, like Tommy did. You do have to do a version of this regardless if you want to work, but committing solely to Greg's approach, which though far more pragmatic, and yes, statistically, as unlikely as as success in acting is for anybody, statistically, maybe a hair more likely to succeed than what Tommy was trying to do. It just never made sense to me to only pursue it that way, because ultimately you're you're waiting on somebody to give you permission to take the next step in fulfilling your dreams. Whereas as crazy as Tommy arguably is or isn't, I mean, he he did it. It actually happened. It actually worked. And he actually sort of made his point. And I think it's a point that really resonates. As much of a strain as it put on the relationship between Greg and Tommy, I'm also really glad for this guy. Like, I'm glad for Tommy that 
their friendship still panned out. The idea of Tommy is depicted in this story after being abandoned by Greg. It's depressing to a degree that like I, I, I don't even want my head to go there. So I'm glad that the two of them were able to come out of this, A, still being friends, but B, still working together. You know, like as curious as I am now after listening to this story to go back and revisit the room, I am far more curious to go take a look at some of the stuff that they've done more recently. Like Greg Sestero, I believe he wrote and also directed, I think it was like a two-part feature called Best Friends, which stars him and Tommy Wiseau. And Tommy Wiseau directed another movie that was supposed to come out last year. And I believe the movie is called Big Shark. And it's about a couple of guys, I believe two of the three leads are him and Greg Sestero again, who have to fight a big shark, I guess. It was supposed to come out last year, and I guess it couldn't be completed in time for its debut. But uh, I'm hoping to see that eventually, because the fact that these guys are still friends and are still making things together, are still living a version of that dream, as low rent and ultra specific as it may be, it makes me happy. It makes me feel hopeful, I guess you could say. I like that. Yes, I'm very interested to see what they created after The Room. Like, you know, The Room having its alleged $6 million budget was a, a, a labor of love or at least a, a creative labor of love by Tommy Wiseau. It was probably like his his autobiographical magnum opus. He's like, this is going to be right. what everyone loves, and they're going to be like, I'm Johnny. But now it feels like they can just kind of have fun and just like make shit because they can and he has money. I'm sure that Greg doesn't mind whatever the 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 money is and I'm sure that Tommy that he's he's grown past his like prima donna directing style and is kind of just like, yeah, let's make some things now. I wish them all the best and I think that like now I really I kind of want to talk about the fact that I haven't seen The Room. Okay. I don't know, like I've seen clips and I don't know if I ever will. I When I had first heard of it, I had heard it under the guise of like, oh man, this movie's so bad that like you gotta just watch it because it's bad. And I'm not a big fan of like hate watching stuff. Right, me neither. And it feels shitty to be like, oh yeah, we're gonna all get in into a room together and shit on someone's creativity. Ooh, boy, I love how shitty this is. <laughs> Fucking give me the plague. Um, That was a dumb reference to uh, Penny Dreadful. No one had watched it. Doesn't matter. <laughs> um, But <laughs> now that I have this context... And I understand the spirit in which it was made and how it changed these two dudes' lives. I feel a little bit better about it. And how, like, it's become this thing that, like, Rocky Horror Picture Show being one of the early inspirations for Tommy Wiseau and now his show or his movie being treated the same way, I like the cyclical nature of that as well. And that, like, people have found a way to take this thing that you know, wasn't the best created and they find ways to make it fun and, and find ways to like bond over it. And also like that, like it inspires people like you, like it is this thing that shows that sometimes you just have to create your own opportunities, which is a lot of what people do now. That's how a lot of people gain their following. Like, you know, you look at a YouTube or uh, what people are doing on TikTok and, and what was Vine at the time. Like, those are just smaller versions of this thing. I do really appreciate at this moment in time what the room represents. 
Yeah, and as far as watching it, I guess I recommend watching it now that you've heard the entire story and you have a, a frame of reference for for basically every element of that production. What I will say, I think there's merit to watching it just to have seen it, but if you don't see it with an audience that's into it and you have that experience, it can be tough to get through because yeah, it, it is that bad. But the same thing that makes it tough to sit through, especially if you're sitting through it by yourself, is also the same thing that makes it truly truly fascinating to watch and why I think people keep coming back to it. I heard it described, and I forget who I heard describe it this way, but I heard it described thusly, he cannot have done this on purpose. It is not possible to have made a movie this bad on purpose. You can't, if you're intentionally making choices that you perceive as bad choices, eventually, if only by accident, one of the choices is going to pan out more or less okay. This is like every conceivable wrong choice that could be made making a movie was made on this movie. And that's why not only is it bad, not only is it inept, but it is so singularly bizarre to watch. Um, So on the one hand, that I think is really what makes it worth it. And on the other hand, it also, it's a tough sit. It's not like a quick, you know, every 20 minutes or so you get to one of the iconic moments. And I think seeing those moments in context is at least in part worth the exercise, but it's a tough sit. It feels longer <laughs> than it is because it is that inept and and bonkers and batshit and entertaining. It really is entertaining in places, but it's right. not good and it's not going to speed right. along. You know, it's funny. So I recently watched the Honest trailer for it. And they were talking about how it's it's very entrance and exit focused. <laughs> and you have to understand that like it was written as a play and it was just never adapted to be what would work on film. It was he was just like, I wrote this play and now we're going to film it. I would really wonder like if someone tried to take the original script and did like a script doctor and made it into a stage play, like what that would feel like. Cause like at its core, it is a very simple love triangle. You know, it, it says a lot of inappropriate things about women and it treats women very poorly, but like the staging isn't too hard. The, the set pieces aren't too hard. Like you could effectively Mm -hmm. make a, the room stage play and it would make more sense being called the room because everything takes place in our room but whatever but that like entrance and exit focus makes more sense if you're like oh this is a play and you're like people come in and out of set and have to like right announce themselves that they exist that's a thing <laughs> uh <laughs> do you have any last thoughts about this before we wrap up <laughs> I was so moved that I forgot. It's like in uh, The Dark Knight, how Michael Caine talks about when, when Heath Ledger walked into the one scene that they have together, he forgot his lines. He doesn't have lines in that scene, but if he had them, he would have forgotten them. It's like that. You made your observation, and I, I was just so taken with it that I forgot what my thought was going to be. My play insight really uh, got you. I guess my final thought is that, you know, I'm glad there's a Tommy Wiseau out there. Uh I guess if you told me that he was not from planet Earth, uh, I would believe you. I wouldn't. Honestly, Uh, I don't think I would even demand evidence. I think I would take it as a given that you were you were right. Hey, I get it. I want very much to see the rest of his work. I want to you got to think at this point, Greg knows all about his background and where he gets his money and stuff. You got to think by now. But I 
I hope we never find out. I genuinely hope we never find out because as much as I want to know, I really, really want to know where this dude gets all his money. The answer, unless he is literally from outer space, the answer is not going to be as satisfying as the not knowing. I guess if if you could say anything about the room works, I think part of what works is dependent on not knowing anything about this weirdo who made this movie. I do think because you haven't seen it, I recommend sitting through it even just the once just to have seen it. It is really fascinating. If you're into movies or movie production at all, it's a fascinating watch because it really is every conceivable inept call you could make and and that's what that looks like it's like true randomness right like how the brain can't actually process random information or generate information randomly so if you try and like plot random points on a map even if you or anyone else in the room can't figure out what the pattern is there will sort of be some kind of loose pattern to it because that's how the brain works. That's clearly not how Tommy Wiseau's brain works. This really, this movie does look like total random anarchic nonsense in action. I find that sort of noteworthy. But I say go check it out. And I'm glad that I had the opportunity to listen to the entire story. So th- thank you to, to Cam Griffin for the recommendation. I had never read the book. I'd seen the movie, but I-, I do feel like this is the way to experience the story if you haven't before. And also, yeah, it made me think a lot about the virtue of believing in yourself and generating your own opportunities uh, if you're fortunate enough to be in a position to do so. And thankfully, Unlike 20 years ago, you don't need $6 million to make a movie. So I think if I want to impart one thing as a takeaway, it's that you too could be Tommy Wiseau and you don't need Tommy Wiseau's money. Believe in yourself. Go make your thing. Because why not? Like, honestly, why not you? The Room is now considered a cult classic. Why not you? Seriously, go make your thing. Tari, what about you? Last thoughts? My last thought is that we've talked a lot about sympathizing with Tommy Wiseau and the creative spirit <laughs> is this the butt <laughs> it's not a butt it is more of a and and i recommend that like i always do that mental health is important and it's stigmatized and that shouldn't be and i know it's expensive but like we on this show have talked multiple times about you know these ideas of like self-loathing and the toxic parts that will manifest as a result and things of that sort so like if you are a a a tommy wiseau and and you feel so separate from others maybe work through that maybe figure out what elements of your own peace are like slipping through and affecting your relationships. You know, I'm again, I'm just being an advocate for mental health care, um, especially nowadays because it's important. Yes, for sure. Like even though it's, it's clear that Tommy was grappling with some pretty serious inner turmoil, much of which very well not be his fault in any way. It's still not justification for uh, treating your co-workers the way Tommy treated some of his co-workers. Yes. So let's let's all take that as a given. Be your own Tommy Wiseau, but don't don't emulate those aspects of his behavior. Find someone to talk to. Right. And not just his co-workers, his best friend. Yeah, not for nothing. <laughs> there is a, a very big idea that you are obligated to stay with your friends no matter what no matter how they treat you like a real friend sticks with sticks together but like toxic relationships 
are very hurtful to everyone involved and like you as a person aren't obligated to endure that and so like you see multiple times in the book that they have to like separate from each other and like re-reconcile all that to say that like you as a person may care about someone but if they are also hyper toxic you're not obligated to just kind of endure that behavior you are entitled to express that that person is being toxic and deal with that relationship moving forward is what i'm saying so like we make an emphasis on co-workers but also like friends too be a good friend yes for sure that's it those were the last thoughts i had so lex michael if people want to be your friend and have a healthy relationship with you where can they find you yes if you want to ask me questions about my backstory where i'm from what my accent is all about where my money comes from and have me dodge all of those questions in a totally unsubtle fashion i'm on twitter and instagram at the lex michael and also if you want to hear me talk about none of those things but to hear me talk about a particular television program i also do another podcast with my partner marianne ramish and it's called friends with benefits where we break down the pop culture juggernaut that is the television show friends episode by episode she is a fan i am not so we're going to be talking about this thing from a fan perspective and a critical perspective you can watch it uh, with us it's on hbo max now so you can stream it there and you can join in please find us wherever you find your podcast you found this one so you can find that one too it's called friends with benefits and while you're seeking that show out if you're also looking for tari j tari where can people find you oh my gosh you can find me with no friends or benefits on Twitter, at Tari J. That's T-A-U-R-I-J-A-Y. But most importantly, you can find this podcast at Missing Outcast. That's M-I-S-S-I-N-G-O-U-T-C-A-S-T. So this has been the last installment of our July theme. July! And so, the next month's theme is going to be all up in the Kool-Aid. So, I feel like I have to explain this in very good detail. So, August is a month that was inserted into the Roman calendar in honor of Emperor Augustus. Same with July, which was inserted into the calendar by Julius Caesar, or in honor of Julius Caesar. This month's theme is all about people inserting themselves where they don't belong. They're all up in the Kool-Aid, don't even know the flavor. And so we're going to be starting with the 1995 black directed, black acted movie, Waiting to Hell. It was directed by Forrest Whitaker. There's a bunch of cheating people inserting themselves into relationships where they don't fucking belong. You know what I'm saying? So... That is the feel, the tone <laughs> of next month's theme. That's going to be our focus for the next month. People who are all up in the Kool-Aid don't know the flavor. So we look forward to exploring that with you guys and having some fun upcoming guests and fun upcoming titles. So please stick around. Until then... This has been the retrospective that is introspective. And now you have a new perspective. Ah, uh, Tari J, you're a great podcaster. Oh my god.
Oh. So good. So you talk about all the things. Hey, hey, stop doing pull-ups in my room. I'm trying to sleep. <laughs> stop. Hey, 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 hey. I don't want to see your dick or your butthole. Please put those away. But they will become famous and you will be so jealous. Your 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 balls and butthole <laughs> look like that Mickey Mouse stuff. 